Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by best-selling author Abba. Abigail Schreier, she's got a brand new book that's coming out now uh, called Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Are Not Growing Up. It's fascinating, it's electrifying, and it's full of statistics. We're also following breaking news. Hunter Biden expected to go uh, behind closed doors today for his long-awaited testimony about his ridiculous international schemes that he allegedly says don't involve his dad, although his dad parachutes into almost every meeting. Right now, the mayor of Athens, Georgia, is speaking about the killing of on the University of Georgia, that nursing student. Uh, she lost her life because an illegal alien uh, was not picked up and was not detained when he was arrested earlier and they ended up brutally killing her. So I don't know what the explanation is, except for, drum roll please, Athens is a sanctuary city. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Mr. Bradley, you realize that if you were to testify under oath... That if you testified that you knew that for Mr. Wade, that would show that both Miss Willis and Mr. Wade had lied under oath. You know that, don't you? Trump trials. The Georgia circus reaches a new low, which could be great news for Trump. Also, Letitia James taunting is classless and helpful for the Trump's appeal on the civil case. Plus, we review and preview Hunter Biden's testimony. Number two. We can't have these small number of migrants and asylum seekers that have identified that they're going to be dangerous hide under the law that there's nothing you can do about it because you cannot tell ICE what we're doing. I don't subscribe to that theory. He's trying to get out of sanctuary city status or modify it. That's the mayor of New York City. Broken border has resulted in a bulging police blotter. As more and more illegal aliens commit heinous crimes in our country as sanctuary cities, and this administration may be in denial, but have, uh, have allowed their hands, have their blood on their hands as illegal immigration has ascended to the number one issue in America. Number one. Frankly, it's a little awkward because we have a huge victory tonight. And not only are we winning so many votes, we're going to win enough votes to send delegates to the convention, I think. Yeah, uncommitted. That's Andy Levin, a Democrat, speaking in Dearborn, Michigan. Michigan results are in, and a Trump nomination win is now a Super Tuesday away, while Haley gets a respectable 30%, and Biden loses over 100,000 voters voters to uncommitted. That's what Andy Levin was talking about, what both parties should learn from last night's primary. Now, we're going to take a look at it. Let's go begin with the Democrats. You just heard Andy Levin. He's a Jewish congressman. But do you know that 71% of Democratic members of, of citizens of, of Michigan are pro-Hamas, pro, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel? You believe that? And that's why the president backing up Israel like every president would do, allowing them to go into Gaza after the massacre on the 7th, 
has cost the president votes and his inability to communicate or uh, approach to the Palestinian Muslim and Arab community, which is prevalent in Michigan, a state that he has to win if he wants to get four more years as president. Now, President Trump's got a tougher. He's got he's more pro-Israel than anybody. So they're not really going to run to President Trump, but they might stay home. Or might go to a third party candidate like Cornell West, like Jill Stein, like RFK Jr., possibly. So last night, 68.2% of the vote went to Donald Trump. He wins. Uh, Haley gets 26% of the vote. Delegate count now 119 to 22. You need 1,215 to win. 874 are available across 16 primaries and caucuses on Super Tuesday. Haley has lost all four states, is in Colorado, and is going to fight on. Upcoming primary races with delegate counts. March 3rd is uh, Washington, D.C., 19. March 4th, North Dakota, the president, uh, the former president will run away with that. Super Tuesday has 874. So what I think the biggest story is the Democratic side. Not a great turnout for Democrats. He loses Dearborn to the president handily. Uh, he also easily wins with 80 percent of the vote. But when you have 13 percent of the vote go to uncommitted that are Democrats, that's problematic. Rashida Tlaib, who to me became a congresswoman to help the Palestinians, not to help America, cut 12. I was proud today to walk in and pull a Democratic ballot and vote uncommitted. 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us. This is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen. Yeah, listen, Rashida Tlaib. Good luck with that. When Donald, if Donald Trump becomes the next president of the United States, uh, you've been a lunatic and unhinged before you got this job. Remember what you said after you won in the midterm elected, uh, use vulgar terms with your kids in attendance. Now you and your sister rally people against Joe Biden for supporting Israel. And which I think is despicable is listen to this. The White House has come out with a statement. They say they regret they have not responded to this crisis well. And last time he met with Palestinian leaders, he says, I must do better, just President Biden. For what? You really think the Israelis are the bad guys? They drop fires. They send text messages. They personally use phones to call people to tell them to get out of harm's way. Anytime an innocent loses their life, I understand it. But when Hamas hides behind civilians and builds tunnels underneath hospitals and schools, you don't blame the IDF. Ari Fleischer, cut 13. Well, it's not unusual to have candidates get a certain percentage of the uncommitted vote. It's happened previously in Democratic primaries. What's different now is it's Joe Biden. And it's an expression, a meaningful, real expression that much in the Democrat base is dissatisfied with him. And so I would not look at this historically and say it's happened before. I'd say it's another indication that Biden is wounded and he's wounded himself. And the question here, though, Sean, and this is what Republicans have to be sober about, is, is this a protest vote and will it come home in October? And my advice to Republicans, I do think most of these people who are uncommitted now will come home in October. This is going to be a close election in November. And Republicans shouldn't assume because of all these frailties, which are legit, real issues, that's going to be a cakewalk. It will not be. Of course not. And I don't think anyone thinks that. Ari Fleischer always has some wisdom. But I would add this. They have, they're also worried about what was going on in college campuses. Evidently, a youth did not show up for President Biden, and he needs them on college campuses. He's trying to forgive their loans, uh, actually give people federal money in order to register people to vote. But if you register people to vote on college campuses, most young people are Democrats. That, to me, is a version of buying votes. So let's talk about what's happening for the Republicans. Nikki Haley, 
I think Nikki Haley's a really good candidate. I know a lot of people listening to me right now don't. I do think she's good. I, I don't like that she is going after the president with Democratic talking points like Liz Cheney and Chris Christie. Uh, quote, Nikki Haley's campaign on the Michigan results where she lost by 40. Joe Biden is losing about 20 percent of Democrats, and many of it's a sign of weakness uh, in November. Donald Trump is losing 35 percent of the vote. That's a flashing warning sign for Trump in November. Since Trump became president in 2016, he lost Michigan Republicans, the state house, state Senate and governor's mansion. That was once a beacon for conservative cause. The Michigan Republican Party is now fractured and divided. Let this serve as another warning sign that's happened in Michigan will continue to play out across the country so long as Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket. So that's what Democrats are saying. But Michigan is fractured, no doubt about it. Uh, the state houses did flip. But you know what a lot of the reason is? And she knows this. It's abortion. Or Governor Whitmer probably would have lost to Tudor Dixon, who ran without exception, which was bad, bad advice. So that is now off the table. Let's see what happens in Michigan. I don't, I don't really think Whitmer's strong. She tried to unwind some of the damage in the Arab, Palestinian, and Muslim community, and she could not do it. So here is Donald Trump, who called in uh, to thank his supporters yesterday. Cut five. I just want to thank everybody. This was a great day, and we have a very simple task. We have to win on November 5th. The numbers are far greater than we even anticipated. We have the worst president in the history of our country, the most incompetent and the most corrupt president, and we can't let this continue. So uh, the date, November 5 and January 20th, when we take over, cannot come fast enough. Right, and he wants to get in there quick, and he's going to be ready to go, and the immigration is his number one issue in 2016 and 2020, and now the country, Democrats included, say it's the number one issue of concern. I know things can change. They did certainly with John McCain. It was once about Iraq and the surge. The economy fell apart, became the number one issue. Famously, Barack Obama makes history and wins. A person that worked for Barack Obama, John Favreau, speechwriter. He has a Pod Save America, popular left-wing podcast, talking facts and saying what we all see. Listen to what he said about Joe Biden. Cut 10. He sounds more frail than he used to, even in 2019 and 2020. Now, that may, and I think doesn't, have anything to do with how sharp he is mentally. But the voice sounds frail, and he shuffles more because of the arthritis in his back. So for most people in the country who are just watching him be president, what do they see when they turn on the television? Yeah, what we all see. What Robert Hurst saw. The tapes that are going to come out. Jim Jordan was on with me today on TV. Said, so well, we're pushing to get the Robert Hurd tapes out to find out why he thought that even though he did things to break the law, he should not be prosecuted because he's too old and forgets everything. What were those interviews like? When we come back, I'll take your calls. Then Abigail Schreier will be in. So for parents especially, and grandparents, you're going to love this book. And she's going to be here talking about her studies and what she found out about what we're doing wrong with our kids and with this whole generation. Uh, Keep in mind, too, you can watch this show on your app, Fox News app. Watch at the bottom. You swipe. You look at business. You look at TV, Fox News Channel. But then you can get to us, and you can watch the show on that or Fox Nation. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Hear the ins and outs of the 2024 election right here. The Brian Kilmeade Show. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. 
and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Ten members of the Biden family, including Joe Biden, either participated or benefited from the family influence peddling schemes. What was the Biden family business? That's been a big question of this whole investigation. What was the business? Biden family associates testified that Joe Biden was the brand. President Biden has repeatedly lied to the American people that he never interacted with his son's associates. But when Joe Biden was vice president, he spoke to his associate, his son's associates by speakerphone over 20 times. He dined with foreign oligarchs and a Burisma executive and had coffee with his son's Chinese associate, all while he was vice president. And since you all care so much about Russia, we know that Vice President Biden spoke on the phone with Russian oligarch Yelena Baterina and dined with her as she was funneling millions of dollars to his son. One associate said this phone call was orchestrated by Hunter Biden, and Vice President Biden told her to, quote, be good to my boy. Okay, on top of that, you know that Russian oligarch has not been sanctioned? Out of all the oligarchs that have been sanctioned over the last three years with Russia, the latest round two, still not sanctioned. I wonder if that's a coincidence. So James Comer outlining why the Hunter Biden testimony and why this inquiry is important. One of the main reasons they did the inquiry is because the no lack of cooperation from the White House. So they said, OK, with an inquiry, you got a bunch of subpoenas. I got subpoena power and I'll use it. That's how you got Jim Biden behind closed doors. I think Hunter Biden behind closed doors will take a lot of the Fifth Amendment. I think he's going to talk a lot about his addiction. Every Democrat that goes there behind closed doors will say, tell me how tough it's been for you to get off coke and hookers. Uh, and tell me how hard it was telling the hookers that you're no longer addicted to sex. I don't know how they're going to somehow make him or try to make him a sympathetic figure. We already saw that Hunter Biden is a, is trying to put on a show with what he did on the courthouse steps, showing up uh, at a hearing. Offering to testify publicly, quickly backtracking and going behind closed doors. So this, for people who say this, this impeachment has not been worth it or they've fallen flat, it's just pure partisan play. This guy, there's one guy who has been a 14-year informant for the FBI, knew nothing about him. You don't know anything about him. Republicans don't know anything about him. They just know for 14 years he's been a source for the FBI, and they've paid him handsomely. He came out and said, yeah, there's, there's a link with Biden, Ukraine, and Russia. Okay. So he said, why can we see this 1023, his intake, when he wrote it down? He goes, no, we don't want to show it to you. He goes, well, show it to us. They go, okay, here it is. Then it turns out David Weiss looked at him and said he's lying. He's under arrest. Then quickly Jamie Raskin and all Democrats say, this is over. What are you talking about? That FBI source has been cleared by the FBI, and at some moment, according to the court records, he flipped and went pro-Russian. Okay. All right. What does that have to do with Jamie Comer's investigation? Nothing. One of the people out there. But Tony Bobulinski and others, including one of these Hunter Biden partners that's in jail right now for 14 years, where Devin Archer, a partner, is also heading, said that the president's been all around every meeting. Listen, this is what Hunter Biden did with no experience. 
He got $8 million from China, $6.5 million from Ukraine, $3.5 million from entities in Russia, $3 million from entities in Romania. On the surface, politics aside, what was this guy doing besides hookers and blow? He was trading on what? What was his expertise? Was he... Was he a, was he Tim Cook, an expert in in Apple and technology? Was he uh, was he a Rod? Was he a baseball expert? You know what what did he do? Well, he had the Biden name. Well, what about the Biden name? Did he get a job? No, he had influence in Washington because Biden was basically a lobbyist for forty years. He could get things done. So his dad not only did can't say they didn't know what he was doing. His dad was actually in a lot of these meetings. I went there. My son was having a meeting. We had dinner. We talked about the weather. I called in. My son put me on speakerphone. We just talked about, I don't know, the weather. Tony Bobulinski goes to Beverly Hilton to meet President, the Vice President of the United States. He said, take care of my son. They meet and they talk about business. And then, of course, with text messages, 10% for the big guy. Or maybe it was 20%. The other big thing that happened yesterday with these trials. So this Terrence Bradley is the former partner of Nathan Wade. Nathan Wade is the lead prosecutor going after Donald Trump, a company uh, in Georgia uh, appointed by Fonnie Willis, who they dated. He got the job even though he does wills and traffic accidents. He got the job. So he shouldn't have got the job. He got paid handsomely more than anybody else. They went on vacations together. The relationship started before the trial. No, not according to them. It happened after he got the job. Well, then he had his partner come out, and text messages reveal that he thought their relationship started in 2019. But yesterday, he lost his mind and forgot everything. Cut 21. Do you tell lies about your friends? I Have I told lies about friends? I, I could have. I don't know. Do you tell lies about your friends about a case of national importance? Objection. That's good. Right. Overruled. I could have. I don't, I don't know. You know what they're referring to? The fact is he already texted back and forth with uh, Ashley Merchant, the attorney for Mr. Romans, who brought this forward. And he said, you know, they had, a, as far as I know, my business partner, Nathan, had, and he would, she were having an affair earlier. When asked about these text messages, he goes, I don't remember. He goes, well, here are the text. He goes, well, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I don't have anything to go on. I don't know why I wrote that. Why aren't you wrote that? And you heard the exchange. If the judge is looking for reason to get rid of these two, does he really believe Terrence Bradley? Cut 22. And then I said, anything else? Anything that's accurate? And you responded, looks good. You recall that? Let me see the... And there, I, I don't know where the exhibits are. Um, they were admitted. Does that refresh your memory? It says looks good, but as, a, as I stated before, I was responding to you putting me back into the motion for receiving $74,000 in a contract. So you just had a guy up there just saying stuff. I forgot everything. So if the judge has to make a decision, if Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade were dealing on the up and up with the ethically in the bringing this very, very big case to the former president of the United States, the answer is absolutely not. They're not telling the truth. If you leave these guys on the case, it's kind of good news for the president because they are so incompetent and so over their heads, he'll probably win. Back in a moment. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
In a recent report covering 80,000 youth globally, it found that symptoms of depression and anxiety doubled during the pandemic, with 25% of youth experiencing symptoms of depression. 5.8 million kids were diagnosed with anxiety between 2016 and 2019. Yeah, researchers at Florida Atlantic University have found that suicide rates are climbing among 13 and 14-year-olds. The study found that suicide rates for teens more than doubled from 2008 to 2018. And that is some of the things that this generation of Americans, maybe around the world, are going through. Why do they need so much therapy? Why are they going through so much depression? People want to quickly say, well, it's the iPhone. It's bigger than that. Abigail Schreier writes about it. She's an independent journalist and author of a brand new book that you're going to be hearing about if you haven't heard about it already. It's called Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. Abigail, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I should say welcome back. Welcome back to the, I guess, the book tour, because (laughs) you did Irreversible Damage. That's right. Uh, That's the name of the book. And that caused controversy. People didn't want to hear that message. You got canceled. Amazon said, don't sell this book anymore. Yeah, you know, a lot of people were very angry, but four years later, even the New York Times is writing about it. So you know that if even the New York Times is admitting all the risks I talk about for gender medicine, then they must have been so obvious by that point that they had to admit it. What was your approach in writing this book? And here we are, a time in which we're trying to, we're seeing kids go through all these uh, depression, psychotropic drugs, all these things, uh, and you think it's had a bad effect on them. That's right. Nobody has gotten more therapy than the rising generation. No one's had more psych meds. No one's had more talk about feelings. More, no one has had more therapeutic parenting and therapeutic intervention in school, social emotional learning. And you know what? It's not doing them any good. In fact, I would argue it's counterproductive. Well, it's making them worse. What makes you think so? Because we should see, I mean, think about breast cancer. Think about anything where treatment has become more prevalent, more accessible. The rates of of malady or disorder should be going down, right? With breast cancer in 1989, when we made screening more available and more prevalent, the rates of death from breast cancer plummeted. We're seeing the opposite. More talk about feelings, more parents relying on these mental health experts um, is making kids sadder, focused on themselves, and it's doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. So in other words, because maybe we're at a point now where we are doing so well as a country, the majority of kids do not have to necessarily struggle. We're not looking for our next meal for most kids. We're not looking for a school to go to. Uh, we don't have to work a job at nine years old in the fields. Because of that, you think there's a big push to get kids in therapy, or do you think the therapy is in response the depression is taking place. Great now. question. So there, the mental health experts are claiming, oh, we're just we're just the firemen. We're just responding to the fire. Not true. They're the arsonists. And here's why. We've been doing preventive mental health care, flooding these kids with therapeutic techniques and methods and mindfulness techniques, wellness for a generation now. No one has gotten more mental health intervention. No one's got more diagnosis. 42% of them have a mental health diagnosis. They've been in treatment now for a generation. And you know what? The self-focus, the feelings focus, the dependence on mental health experts that parents have to raise their kids, it's not helping. But what is it robbing kids of? Efficacy. Feeling like, I can do this. I can figure it out. I can take a risk. They're so afraid of trauma. They think they can't. They think they've been bullied. They think they've been uh, traumatized. These kids think they have PTSD if they get dumped. 
in a relationship. Right. Or if they don't, not in the uh, the top friend group. Right. Exactly. 86% say they have menu anxiety. These kids are so saturated in psychopathology. They think they have mental disorders. And you know what? When you think you have a mental disorder, it's not like saying I'm a little shy. I'm a w- little worried. I'm a little sad. When you say, actually, no, I have anxiety. I have PTSD. I have ADHD. What you're saying is my brain has a problem and I can't fix it on my own. And, and look, there are kids. There's no question. And there are people who are suffering, but most of these kids are bummed out, worried well. They are fine, and we are over-treating them. Abigail, so you say for the most part kids need to go through tough times. Absolutely. They need to be the odd man or girl out. They need to go through a situation where maybe things aren't perfect at home, but the way they respond and adapt shapes who they become, and you don't get that from therapy you found out. That's right, and you know who else you get that from? Parents who are the authority, not parents who outsource their authority to mental health experts. That is not helping kids. It undermines parents' confidence to do what's right for their kids, and parents are in the best position to do what's right for their kids. So you talk about, too, the way the Israelis handle uh, situations, for example, with their soldiers, you think is a learned thing. So they go through horrific things with the pro- The IDF is going through it now in Gaza. They see yeah. horrible things. They watch their friend get blown up. How did they handle it as opposed to the way we handle it? That's right. With PTSD, the reason they have so much lower rates of PTSD than American soldiers because they handle it totally differently. In Israel, and this just happened this week, they, they have a, a soldier who's been shaken up, who's seen something traumatic and awful, like an IED or some terrible traumatic injury. They say, listen, I know you're going, this is, this, what you just went through something hard. You're going to be fine. We're sending you home to your family for a few weeks to recover, but you need to know you're going to be just fine. You're going to return to your men in, in, in a few weeks and you're going to be fine. In America, they take you out of service. They tell you, here are the symptoms of PTSD. You probably have them. You may have them your whole life. Your country did this to you. And lo and behold, they do not recover. And just this week, a woman who was a captive was returned to service. So in Israel, and that's a war. And in in different situations, too, is you talk about to your nine year old. Yeah. Said at nine years old, you wanted your kid asked to walk to school. Yeah. And she said, listen, there it's a risk. You said, yeah. And you said, if a kid walks to school at nine, uh, they feel triumphant. That's right. And they'll come back at 13. It's going to be no big deal. How important is it young for them to start doing things on their own, getting chores, getting assignments, getting responsibility? It's the most important thing because you feel like I can do when you do that, right? I mean, here's the thing with this generation. Millennials, they founded Snapchat, Facebook, Spotify. They, this generation, we're not seeing tech founders because they say in the largest numbers we've ever seen in recorded history, they say, I can't do anything to improve my life. They have an, what's called an external locus of control. They don't believe they can take risks. And the part of that is because we never taught them they could. We never left them the independence to do it. We made them consult an adult for everything. And very often it was an adult mental health expert. So an adult listen to us right now, I go, yeah, my kid's a mile away from school. I'm not going to let him or right. her walk. It's too scary. Right. 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 There is a risk. You know, they think every kid's going to get kidnapped. Right. And we transferred our anxiety to our children. They are now saying they have menu anxiety, summer anxiety. They have uh, climate anxiety. We have let these kids become so frantic and so worried. And then we bring in these mental health experts as the uh, as so supposedly as the solution. They're not the solution. They are the worry makers and they're creating the problem. Abigail Schreier's here. But Abigail, people looking at you and I think reasonably, I'm not saying I was a perfect, I'm the perfect parent. But I think you're right on these things. But what backs up your beliefs? 
Sure. Um, there, there are a few things. First of all, anxi- independence has been used to treat anxiety really well, really effectively. But the other thing is the most effective treatments for childhood anxiety are treating the parents. Often the parents and their worries and their feelings like, oh, I don't, this is above my pay grade, that's what's doing the harm. You know what? Punishing a kid, that's not going to traumatize. There's no proof that sending a kid to his room is going to traumatize a kid or giving him chores or giving him high expectations. We know these are good for your mental health. And some of the proof of it is, you know who did best? There's a long-term study on this. You know who did best during the Great Depression? It wasn't the poorest kids who, whose parents abandoned them or killed themselves, and it wasn't the rich kids. It was the middle-class kids who had to cut back. They had to do chores. They had to take jobs after school. They not only did they have more success, less anxiety, less depression, they were the happiest at the end of their lives. That's so interesting uh, for them to do. It's your circumstances are the area in which you grew up. Yeah. And then parents want to overcompensate for the problems they had. Right. You talk about, too, we went through a period of massive divorce in yeah. this country. So if you're a pro- kid of divorce and you become a parent, how do you respond That's right. So parents think, you know, for too long we thought um, therapy could only help. You know, you go through a divorce, you think, oh, of course my kids need therapy. What I want parents to know is not that therapy is never appropriate, not that psych meds are never appropriate, but that they all come with risks. Every every intervention, every medical intervention, every drug, even Tylenol comes with risks. And therapy does too. And I'll tell you what the risks are because we're seeing them. Higher anxiety, more thinking about your feelings, more depression, more alienation from your parents and less feeling of efficacy, less feeling like you can do things on your own. So you talk about in your book, to, you lay the groundwork for it, what your grandmother went through. Yeah. Uh, just as, her, as horrible as I'm listening to it, I heard your podcast with Barry Weiss. Listen to the story, just the most horrendous upbringing that I could imagine. Well, yeah, her parents died in child when she was in childbirth. Her mom died in childbirth, rather. And in 1927, and she was born to a poor immigrant family from Russia. And she was moved around from, you know, they didn't have anyone who could nurse her. She was moved around from cousin to cousin. She often got the leftover breast milk. And uh, she um, didn't have a stable home until her older sister at 17 got married and took her in. And when my grandmother was age six, so finally she had a stable home. She grew up very poor during the Depression. She then got polio. She was in an iron lung for the year. And I'm telling you, this was the happiest, most most uh, positive woman I have ever known. She raised, she formed a family. She met my grandfather in college. She raised three kids. She went to law school at night. She became one of the first female judges in Maryland history. Yeah, how many times she has an excuse? I excuse. My, I felt guilty my mom died in childbirth. Other siblings bothering her. She also didn't get the breast milk. She had great teeth. Right. So obviously might have been a little self-conscious. Then alone for a year, right. they didn't know how to treat this. So right. all these excuses uh, for her life not fulfilling any type of potential it wasn't even on the table. Right? right. And you know what no one said? No one said, you need a session with the school counselor. No one said, maybe we need to get you an excuse so you don't have to, an accommodation so you don't have to take these exams. No one told her that she was living with trauma. And to the end of her life, it never occurred to her that she was. So if you don't, if you have a kid and you're lucky enough to be able to afford them and they, and they can uh, go to the great schools and they do have, you do grow up with a car. And when they be turned 17 to get their license, they do get a car. All these things. These are things that maybe you didn't grow up with. Should you deny your kids these things? I think the question parents should ask this that we're not asking, we're all asking, are my kids happy and how can I make my kids happier? What we should be asking is, will this make my kids stronger? Anything that you you know th- are thinking of doing for your kids, you start with that question because the truth is focusing on happiness makes you miserable. Focusing on strength, well, that will ultimately be the key to happiness.
And uh, it forms resourcefulness and resilience, which That's you right. can only get from life experience. You can't get from a book. That's right. But and remember, do- Grit was the top-selling book for about a year. Yeah. That's the most – that's the, the, the quality that people need most to have the most success and have. That's right, and they're not going to get it through therapy. Right. A lot of the stuff I found uh, in your book could be achieved, I felt, in sports. For example, when the script goes off. If you're, you know, you're 11 years old, you're playing soccer, baseball, football. You don't know if you're starting. You might not be big enough. You might not be fast enough. The coach might yell at you for certain things. You might, uh, you know, you have to stay at practice. You don't get to hang out with your friends. You learn discipline, sacrifice, that life isn't fair, that you have to win over coaches, find a way to win a game when you're hurt, not playing well. A lot of that stuff, in theory, you learn in sports. That's absolutely right, but it's not going to help if they're all getting mental health days off and they're all talking about their trauma. If they are doing anything, okay, anything goal-oriented, anything beyond sitting around and focusing on the self. You know, people ask me, well, what could the schools do? You know what they could do? They could shrink their mental health staffs so that the counselors were only dealing with kids who actually needed them, not preventive mental health care, so-called preventive mental health care. And they had the kids paint the gym, do any activity, including sports. Uh, all those things would be a lot better for these kids' mental health. And the importance of giving kids responsibility. That's right. Make them have a role in the house, have a stake in the game. You know, you're in charge. You, uh, you talked about uh, sending your kids to the supermarket. That's right. I gave them chores. That's what I learned from the book. Those are so good for kids. You know why? Because I sent them to the supermarket on scooters with a backpack. And for the first time, they had to ask people for help. They had to, and then when they got home, they had a feeling of completion. I can do it. They got to learn our neighborhood. And um, it's all, all chores are really good for kids. Um, so the name of the book, uh, Ab- Abigail Schreier's here, is uh, Bad Therapy, uh, Why the Kids Are Not Growing Up. And the certain ages where things have to happen, if a kid is not experiencing some type of adventure uh, and some type of risk, by the time they're 9, 12, 13 years old, they can be the kids that doesn't want to do anything. That's right. And then you factor in the iPhone on top of that where you can live through somebody else. That's exactly right. They don't want – by the time we – we are so frantic and fearful. By the time we let kids do anything risky or dangerous, they've given up. They don't want to. All right. So listen, a couple more minutes with Abigail when we get back. We're going to talk about what parents can do. If we find that some of the things that maybe your kid's going through right now uh, and you want to correct it, uh, go get the book, number one. And number two, maybe we'll give some advice. That sound good? Terrific. All right. Back in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Abigail Schreier is here in studio, independent journalist and author of a, a brand new book. Uh, certainly to be a bestseller for a long time. Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. And, Abigail, I thought about you right away when Dr. Phil had this sparring session on The View. Like 08, 09, smartphones came on, and and kids started, they stopped living their lives and started watching people live their lives. Then COVID hits 10 years later, and the same agencies that knew that are the agencies that shut down the schools for two years. Who does that? Are you saying no school children died of COVID? I'm saying it was the safest group. They were the less vulnerable group, and they suffered and will suffer more from the mismanagement of COVID than they will from the exposure to COVID. No one, and would, that's not- no one would acknowledge that. That's right. 
And and the damage that's done when you put two kids kids home for two years. That's exactly right. You put and, masks on them. Yeah, and, and that's right. In the summer of 2020, when kids were heading uh, you know into lockdown for a second school year, you know what that mental health experts had to say about it? The American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric what? Association, nothing. They talked about poli- they came to Congress and lectured about police tactics tactics and climate systemic racism and climate change. That's what they were worried about. So let me tell you something. Now they're now posing as the solution to the mental health problem. They are part of the mental health problem. And you know that New York has put uh, put aside $30 million to provide any school with the therapy they need. All they have to do is ask for it, which is going to be more of the problem, according to your book. Now, do you notice the difference between how liberals handle their kids and conservatives handle these things in this environment? Absolutely. There's a great new research out from Jean Twenge in this book, Generations, and she talks about, you know, she is no conservative, but she talks, she admits that even though teen, gen, you know, teen girls do the worst in terms of mental health, in terms of anxiety and depression, teen boys from liberal families have worse mental health in terms of anxiety and depression than teen girls from conservative families. Abigail, the thing is about America, this is why it's the biggest story. If we don't compete against each other, the country doesn't get better. We don't get sharper. We lose, we win. But now you're talking about a generation that doesn't even want to get in the game. They want to sit on the couch, the therapist's couch in their own couch. That's right. Over half of them between 18 and 25, the years, you know, ages 18 to 25 are living with their parents. And this is not just, you know, we're talking about in a low, you know, unemployment time. They don't want to grow up. And the problem is they don't feel well enough. Right. To grow up. But growing up is the solution. Did you just give me a stat? One in six kids is in some type of therapy? Between the ages of two and eight, one in six kids have a mental health disorder as of 2016. According to the CDC, they were already getting the diagnosis. Well, they're getting a lot of mental health treatment. And it's unnecessary. And it's unnecessary. That's the problem. Do you think their intentions are good? So I do, but mental... Preventive mental health has never worked. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who need, who are suffering and need it, right? There are anorexics. There are kids with severe OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. There are people who need help to deal with a phobia. Unfortunately, we are showering kids. We are crop dusting therapy across the whole population. We are crop dusting these psych meds, and it's doing the opposite. Got to read this book. If you're an aspiring parent, parent, a grandparent, it's vital. It's called Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. We'll talk again on One Nation on Saturday night, okay? Terrific. Thank you. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade, 48th and 6th, right here in Midtown Manhattan. I come to you with the Brian Kilmeade Show. A lot going on. Hunter Biden is just a frantic scene. Just walked in behind closed doors to go behind congressional leaders, uh, oversight as well as the Judiciary Committee. Uh, of course, Democrats will say how great he is and how bad it is to be addicted to drugs and hookers. And then they'll ask Hunter Biden about his myriad of multi-million dollar business transactions and what exactly he did for all that money. Why his dad parachuted, called in to just about every one of those meetings or 12 separate times he traveled with his dad. But I'm sure his dad knew nothing about his son. We'll discuss some of that. We'll cover the breaking news as it takes place. Jackie Heinrich is all over this. There was a security issue. There was a some type of computer malfunction. She could not get inside early, but she's now in there to tell us what's going on, kind of set the table. Also, we're trying to avoid a government shutdown. Let's get to the big three.
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Mr. Bradley, you realize that if you were to testify under oath, that if you testified that you knew that from Mr. Wade, that would show that both Ms. Willis and Mr. Wade had lied under oath. You know that, don't you? It's a little bit intense. Yesterday, the Trump trials. First off, local, Georgia. It was a circus. It reaches a new low. It's great news for Trump. But man, how could this judge let Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade stay on this case? How could this case even continue? Why classless Letitia James taunts President Trump on his civil case, plus a review and preview Hunter's testimony. Number two. We can't have these small number of migrants and asylum seekers that have identified that they're going to be dangerous hide under the law that there's nothing you can do about it because you cannot tell ICE what we're doing. I don't subscribe to that theory. Mayor Eric Adams says, oh, sanctuary cities, not really good. You think so? Murderers, criminals, illegal aliens being allowed to exist. ICE being iced out of all legal proceedings. Now he wants to change. And I think if he gave sodium pentothal to all these other Democratic leaders in these cities, they'd want the same thing. Will the governor respond? Will the left-wing city council respond? Number one. Frankly, it's a little awkward because we have a huge victory tonight. And not only are we winning so many votes, we're going to win enough votes to send delegates to the convention, I think. Andy Levin, he's a Jewish lawmaker who is responding to the overwhelming number of people who voted uncommitted in the Michigan primary yesterday that 80 percent of the vote on the Democratic side went to President Biden, but over 101,000 went to uncommitted because his stance of pro-Israel, while Donald Trump triumphed easily over Nikki Haley. And we'll talk about that with Rich Lowry in detail. And we'll also cover this. How about this? You talk about President Biden inexplicably with an ice cream cone in his hand and Seth Meyers on his left says, Oh, I expect a ceasefire with Israel in a week. Really? While licking an ice cream cone, you make that type of announcement. Then out of nowhere, he's walking to the chopper and they ask him, where are you going? Oh, Walter Reed for an exam. Excuse me. Okay. Thanks for telling everybody. Usually you don't keep things like that. A secret from the press who live every day to find out what's going on with the white house when the lid goes on usually at noon or comes off around that same time. So what happened yesterday in the Michigan primary? Not a big surprise. Uh, Donald Trump walking away with 68.2% of the vote. Nikki Haley with 26.5% of the vote. Uh, in terms of delegates, it's 119 to 22. 1215 gets you the nomination. Super Tuesday should deliver it. Upcoming, oh, by the way, Nikki Haley's still fighting it out. She's going to Colorado today. She was lost. For, she's 0-4. Uh, March 3rd, uh, she'll bid the Washington, D.C., 19 delegates. March 4th, North Dakota, 29 delegates. And Super Tuesday, 874 delegates. At which time, Nikki Haley has not said, I'll be going on from here. Cut one. Now let's talk about what needs to happen on Election Day. Because there's a decision to make. We can either go with more of the same or we can go with something new. More of the same is not just Joe Biden. More of the same is also Donald Trump. And she is viciously going after Trump like Democrats do. And maybe that's what's getting her the money. As, as, as Gavin Newsom said, Nikki Haley's become our best surrogate. She does keep saying that Donald Trump has lost it, not the same guy, unhinged and can't win. 
I don't know how they eventually make up, but what Trump should be thinking about, the first thing I would say if I'm Trump, because if I'm dead set on, on winning four years back, is tell me the bad news. And the bad news, and there's not a lot of bad news, but the bad news for him is he's still losing suburban women. And a lot of suburban, too many suburban households to Nikki Haley. Some of it because Nikki Haley's a really good candidate. I don't care what anyone says. Real, has a lot to offer. Very good on her feet. Very successful. Very smart. Very experienced. And a lot of people say, yeah, that's my candidate. Head to head, she does better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump does. I understand that. But she does not have the MAGA vote. So that's why I wonder. I don't even like to use that term. She does not have the Trump supporters. So if Ron DeSantis was going to win, it was going to be with Trump supporters. When it was clear he wasn't, he was out. When Nikki Haley was not winning over Trump supporters, she pivoted to be the last remaining candidate to be the Liz Cheney, Chris Christie, any Democrat to fight him from that angle and go for the 20 percent. What Donald Trump's got to do is get the Nikki Haley supporters. He can't afford to lose any. I don't care what it takes. If you're Trump, can't afford to lose any Nikki Haley supporters. Now, I don't know how many in South Carolina. She had some loyal, uh, loyal supporters. I don't know how many would have a problem switching to Trump. That's what he's got to focus on. And that includes at one point reaching out to him. Here's Senator Tim Scott, who's emerging as a leading candidate as a running mate for President Trump. Cut seven. There's no reason for her to stay in, Sean. The bottom line is this. This is a classic, good old-fashioned butt-whipping. You can't explain this away. You can't talk it away. You can't talk about staying in the race. This is now a race between Joe Biden and our friend, Donald Trump. This is a race between America's future and America's past. This has become a race around the party of unity under Donald Trump and the party of division led by Joe Biden. And the one thing that Trump has coming to him are the issues. Uh, When you talk about strength in the Middle East and his loyalty to Israel and you look at what happened with Ukraine, look at what has blown up overseas since he left office. And nothing is worse than the border. And where's the president run on the border? Who's tougher on the border? Of course, Trump is tougher on the border. Of course, his record was better. And now it's emerged as the number one issue in America. Gallup did a poll. Over a thousand people, 28 percent said immigration, number one. That number was at 20 percent in January. Independents say 22 percent say it's the number one issue. Uh, Democrats, 10 percent. So it's all number one across the board. This is becoming a police blotter. Listen to this. ICE revealed that the Salvadorian illegal alien that was arrested in connection with the murder of a two-year-old child, we learned the suspect was ordered to be deported 2022, but was never done after the local sanctuary jurisdiction ignored ICE detainers. That's blood is on all their hands. The Prince George's County Police Department of Baltimore announced Monday they're now charging the 24-year-old with first and second degree murder. Preventable. Think about that if that was your relation. Honduran alien arrested for rape of a teenage girl and stabbing robbery. 19-year-old Honduran man who's been arrested in Kenner following a series of violent crimes. The Kenner police say the investigation began on, the investigation began on February. He was notified of a rape of a 14-year-old girl at Knife Point. Angela Matias uh, Orlando was identified as the suspect. Police say Orlando was in the United States, drum roll please, illegally. ICE in Boston. Arrested Guatemalan national convicted of child sexual assault in Massachusetts. According to, uh, to our own Bill Malusian, ICE in Boston arrested this Guatemalan illegal alien convicted of that sexual abuse of a 14-year-old. Say they were released from custody without notice by the Gloucester District Court after they ignored ICE's detainer. Sanctuary City. 
ICE says he was convicted of sexual assault in January, ordered to register as a sex offender, but the local jurisdiction still refused to honor ICE's detainer. Sickening. Tell me this is going to stand. Now, Border Patrol finds 12 pounds of fentanyl pulled from the San Diego sector, but I digress. We forget sometimes about fentanyl. What about this? New details emerge in the Georgia nursing student Lakin Riley's death. Suspect accused of disfiguring her skull. Turns out she whipped out her phone, called 911, but he wouldn't let her complete the call. This guy was in New York first with his so-called wife to get here and kid. Abara blew off a court appearance in Athens for shoplifting uh, in December. He was arrested. But guess what? A bench warrant was offered, was put out there for his arrest. I did not know this. But do you know Athens is a sanctuary city? And because of that, Ibero, uh, ICE did not pursue. Ibero wasn't allowed. He did commit the offense of aggravated battery and malicious cause of death, bodily harm to another by seriously disfiguring the body. Those are his latest charges. Republicans are demanding that Mayorkas hand over information on this guy after the brutal murder. Keep in mind, he was right here in New York City. He was sitting here. Caught, he was driving around with his kid on a scooter. The little kid without a helmet on, given a ticket, he should have been thrown out right there. If you're on a green card, you're tossed. But you're here illegally? I don't know. They don't pull down your bed in, at the Roosevelt Hotel? I'm Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade Show, and we come back. The latest on the Hunter Biden investigation. We go out to his closed, uh, the preview of his closed-door hearing that is going on right now with Jackie Heinrich. Bottom of the hour, Rich Lowry. Busy day. So glad you're here. On the road to 2024. Is a Trump nomination just a super Tuesday away? Well, the numbers are far greater than we even anticipated. I hope she'll drop out. There's no reason for her to stay in. You can't win a general election if you can't get 40% of Republican primary voters. All eyes on Super Tuesday, right here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's a pattern with uh, the Biden family. Hunter Biden goes out and tries to get business, but the agreements and the deals never get done until Joe Biden shows up, either on a phone call, stopping by a lunch, dropping by a dinner. That's when these things happen. At the end of the day, I think with every interview, we've learned new information. And, And the basis of what we've learned is that the Bidens didn't have a legitimate business. Their business was selling access to Joe Biden, the brand. And that's what James Comer said going into this meeting. And now we have a statement from Hunter Biden that's just been released. Let's bring in Jackie Heinrich now, who's had a heck of a time getting in because of a computer malfunction. So did everybody in the press. But Jackie, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. So Hunter Biden came out and he had his opening statement. I'll just give you a little of it. He says, uh, I'm here today to provide the committee with an uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business, not while I was practicing law, not while I was in my investments, no transactions, domestic or international, not as a board member, not as an artist, never. But I think it doesn't end there. Am I right? Yeah, you know, what he's saying is basically what we're going to hear from Democrat member of co- members of Congress who come out of this um, and we're, are going to look toward the Alexander Smirnov allegations um, that, you know, he lied on the 1023 form. There's been a lot of hay made out of, uh, you know, that 
the charges that he's facing and whether that undermines the credibility of the impeachment probe, how far that affects Hunter in terms of allegations that have been made against him. So there's going to be probably a lot of spin that we're hearing from Hunter and from Democrats. A lot of what is going to be, um, well, everything is going to be behind closed doors. So we won't have eyes on uh, necessarily. But this is also going to be important for you know Republicans. They've been trying to get Hunter to testify for many, many, many months. Um, and they're going to have questions that they want him to answer, how truthful he is or how forthcoming he is. We'll have to watch and see. So uh, one of the things you said, you built your entire partisan house of cards on lies told by Gail, Gal Luft, Tony Bobulinski, Alexander Smirnoff, and Jason Galanis. Luft, who is a fugitive, has been indicted for his lies. Smirnoff has been made you dupes in carrying out of a made you dupes in carrying out a Russian disinformation campaign waged against my father and has been indicted. Bobulinski has been exposed for the many false statements he has made. I don't know anything about that. And Galanis, who's serving 14 years in prison for fraud. That's his business partner, not mine. Rather than follow his facts, they've been laid out before you in bank records, financial statements, correspondence, and other witnesses. You continue your frantic search to prove the lies. You and those who rely on you keep peddling. Yes, they are lies. Financial statements they had to dig up. Aliases they had to find out that his dad used. And financials and, and shell companies he has yet to explain. That's right. I mean, it's it's going to be fireworks, I think, for Republicans uh, just to be able to get the questions to Hunter uh, that they have wanted for a very long time to pose to him. There's been a lot of back and forth with his lawyers about whether or not he would even you know, show up on the Hill. You remember when he showed up on the Senate side a few months ago and defied a subpoena. Um, but I think it's interesting that with this all happening on the Hill today, the president chose today to finally have his physical um, so, you know, I, I don't know whether how long this was planned, but, you know, you look at the calendar and, and wonder if you're me. Don't they usually announce that? He just casually yelled that out as he's walking to his chopper. Well, they announced it just before he, you know, headed out. There was a pull note sent to the White House press corps about where he was going. Um, but from what I gather, you know, this was all it's all sort of came together this morning, very early this morning. Um, I'm sure there was some level of coordination with Walter Reed before we all found out about it. Um, but later on today, they're going to have to release or they're going to release the statement from his doctor like they always do. And, you know, I, I just wonder how much of it they're going to get into. Uh, you know, we've heard before when they were asked if the president would have a cognitive test uh, that on the last physical, they said basically the job of the presidency is so great that we don't think that, you know, it's necessary. He's obviously, you know, demonstrated that he can carry out the duties of the job. That was the reasoning last time, you know, in his advancing age, there's been a lot of pressure on the the president and on the White House to show that some of the, you know, verbal stumbles that we see or physical stumbles that we see are not an indicator of something more worrisome. Um, I don't expect that we're going to get a cognitive test today. It's not something that they have seemed, um, you know, they've laughed off the question, basically, when we've, when we've asked in the past. Um, but we'll get details about, you know, his physical health for sure. And they gave us a lot of detail on that last time, including what medications he might be taking or any, um, you know, developments with his, I think he, he has had asthma for quite some time. He's had, um, you know, a, a stumbly gait, uh, shuffle, a shuffle in his walk, basically. Um, so we'll, we'll get some more out of that. Well, well, yeah, we'll have to see about that, uh, how much I know he doesn't make his doctor available like they wanted Donald Trump's doctor available. And now he's a congressman in Texas. 
But right. Jackie, also, I talked to Jim Jordan today. They want to push Robert Hurd to release the transcripts and the tapes of his meeting with that investigative authority. You think they'll, those those tapes inevitably will come out, right? Well, I know that they probably exist because if you look to the letters that the White House lawyers sent to Robert Hur or sent to the DOJ rather, trying to get them to adjust their um, you know summary before they sent it out. They go back and they actually say, according to the transcripts, you know, X, Y, Z was what was said, not this paragraph. So they definitely exist. Um, What's happening right now is sort of a game of hot potato where the president and this is actually I just want to pull this back and put it in context because I think it's important. So Biden gets an advanced copy of the Robert Hur report. They look over it. They don't like the comments about his age. And so through the White House lawyers, they reach out to DOJ and they say, you know, you guys need to change this. It's out of step with policy. Merrick, and this goes to Merrick Garland directly. Merrick Garland, through another official, writes back and says, actually, this is, you know, in, in sync with our policy. We're not changing anything. They go back to the White House and say, you've got your time to exercise privilege. If you want to you know, redact anything using your executive authority, you can do that. Biden says no. He didn't want to be the one holding the right. eraser, right? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, we're up against a break. Jack, I did, that, I did not know any of that. Thanks so much. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If states like Colorado and Michigan and Minnesota want to start winning again, you have to have somebody on the ticket that can win a general election. In every one of the early states, yes, did Donald Trump win? I give him that. But he lost 40% of the vote. You can't win a general election if you can't get 40% of Republican primary voters. It's kind of interesting because she's putting herself down. I look at her as a good candidate. I mean, I think she won. Donald Trump got 33% of the vote in South Carolina. I think it was Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, 26, and the next one got 22. I mean, Marco Rubio could have said, well, you know, Donald Trump got 36% of the vote, but you can't win without, uh, without 64% of the Republicans. Well, there was somebody else in the race. Governor, you're a good candidate. A lot of people like you. And, yeah, there's some people, portion of your, uh, of your supporters, just don't like Trump. Will do anybody but Trump. We, we all met Republicans like that. A lot of them are your friends. Got it. But that's an argument that you would expect from somebody on the Democratic side, and that leads to, and I'll play some more clips, somebody like Gavin Newsom comes out and said he's the best, she's the best surrogate we have. Rich Lowry joins us now, editor of Nash Review um, and best-selling author. Rich, uh, welcome back. Your your thoughts about Donald Trump's win, 68.2% of the vote to 26.5% of the vote in Michigan, and Nikki Haley's comments. I think I'm with you, Brian. I don't think her comment makes any sense. You know, by by her logic, every contested primary, the, the the winner needs to win, you know, 90 percent of the vote or he's, you know, screwed in the general election. And that just makes no sense. And, and what Michigan seems to suggest is that the Nikki Haley 40 percent in South Carolina, which was, was, you know, it's it's a losing showing, but I think a pretty good showing, all things considered, but had to do with the fact that she was from the state. She campaigned there intensely for weeks. She spent a lot of money there. She outspent Trump, you know, by uh, several words 
orders of magnitude. And then she goes to Michigan. She doesn't have a lot of time to campaign. She doesn't have a lot of time to spend money. And it, it, her result begins to look a little bit more like what she's doing in the national polls, which is 15 percent against Trump in a lot of the national polls. And I'd expect her to drop further uh, on Super Tuesday. And it's just not true. You know, a lot of these Haley voters will show up for Trump. Yep. Uh, some are saying in the exit polls they won't vote for him. But, you know, under the pressure of the real choice between Trump and Biden, are they really going to stick with that? I'm not sure. And Steve Karnacki, of course, the analyst at Arrival Network, had a good piece about this yesterday. The, 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 the polling shows Trump has 90-something percent support among uh, Republicans and a matchup against Biden, kind of the same number Biden does among Democrats. So, so is it really true that he has this problem among uh, Republicans? It's, you know, it's the most sort of intensely anti-Trump independents and moderates are showing up and voting for Haley. But in the scheme of things, you know, you want all those voters, but that's a relatively small pool. And the, the general election polling, again, shows Trump ahead among independents. Um, so, you know, there, there have been some warning signs for Trump, I think, in, in the primaries, but it's not like the uh, the five-alarm fire that, that a lot of uh, Democrats want to portray it as. Well, I mean, uh, let's just point to 101,000 that voted non uh, uncommitted for in the Democratic primary in Michigan. But for that reason, non-committed because he's pro-Israel and Israel uh, has killed civilians inadvertently in Gaza. So the White House came out and get this regrets how they've responded to the crisis in Gaza. Regrets how they responded. What is he even talking about? Yeah, I mean, he's been moved by this the sentiment within the, the party. And it's not just, you know, in these Arab areas of Michigan. It's in college towns, it's among young people, and they're scared. And it's, it's clearly affected his position on Israel, which I think is disgraceful. I'm not sure that uncommitted vote was was hugely robust. You've had other elections where uncommitted, I don't know, is it got like comparable numbers or more, 13. you know, without the concerted effort you, you've had. And, and I would say the same thing about those voters as I do uh, about Nikki Haley voters. End of the day, they have the choice in November, you know, when it's not a free uncommitted vote to stay home or vote uncommitted when it's Biden versus Trump, you know, a candidate who's much more pro-Israel, they're, they're going to come home. They're going to come home. I guess uh, they probably will, or they would have a choice of RFK and Jill Stein and Cornell West, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, isn't that and different? That's true. And, and that is, that's the real threat. You know, there's been a lot of focus on no lo- labels that seems to be going nowhere fast, but there's a real threat to Biden's left. You know, RFK, I don't think he's going to get anywhere close to what he's been polling, but he's been polling pretty robustly. And Jill Stein and Cornell West, you know, they just need to take enough in, in some key states. Uh, arguably, it happened to Hillary in, in 2016 to, to make a difference. So that that they should really fear. Talking to Rich Lowry now about uh, what the Republican Party's doing. The one thing is pretty clear. Uh, Michigan does seem to be a mess uh, so far. And their, their party seems to be coming apart. Uh, they they have to have a caucus on Saturday now, which is weird. I really don't know yeah. what that what that is about. But for Nikki Haley, she's going to stay through Super Tuesday. She's in Colorado already. It's interesting because you know it's it's not like she's a weird like Bernie Sanders. We knew he didn't have a shot. He couldn't wear a suit. He's a socialist, even though he had big crowds. But I'm like that that's not. I look at Nikki Haley. I looked at somebody who's really talented, conversed, comfortable, experienced. She's a really good candidate. So. I actually think that Trump has got to find a way to make amends to make sure that mm-hmm. 10% that only wants to vote for her, yeah. he in these battleground states where it's going to be signed by a few thousand people, how do you see that playing out? After Super Tuesday, she's going to be done. 
And what happens then with their relationship, and does it matter? Yeah. It's a it's a great question. I'm not sure. You know, the traditional play, you're you're the front runner, you're the presumptive nominee. You embrace that person, you know, the, you embrace Nikki Haley, you say she ran a great race, you want every single one of her voters, you want her out campaigning for you. And and maybe, you know, Trump as as everyone says and is is largely correct is transactional. So maybe some version of that will happen. But there's been a lot said. <laughs> there's been a lot said on both sides that I think make that make that harder. But that 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 would be the conventional play. That's what I think would make most sense, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. You know, a primetime speaking slot, all, all that kind of thing, but um, I, I'm not sure that's happening. So put this in perspective, Rich. We've seen a lot of things happen where major stories uh, take place, like the collapse of the economy in 2008, and Obama responded better. McCain's not a strong, uh, doesn't have this economic background. He's going to lose, right? Plus two years, uh, two terms of George Bush. Mm-hmm. People aren't happy. They want to make a change. But the one issue that's coming to President Trump's legitimately is his number one issue, and that yep. is illegal immigration. And now, as I mentioned, this is about this is less about how many people are coming through the border. Now I feel like I'm reading a police blotter, a murder of a two-year-old yeah. child by an El Salvadorian in a sanctuary city in Boston. We have a murder in Baltimore, have a murder. Uh, Honduran alien arrested for rape of a teenager, uh, also from Honduras uh, in Kenner County. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, in Boston, and then we have the horrific story in Athens, Georgia. So these stories are real. This death and destruction is real. These illegal immigrants are committing crimes, staying here in sanctuary cities yep. and then killing. I mean, that yep. is that has made this the number one issue in America. Yeah, literally the number one issue, the number one issue. You know, people have been saying the last couple of years, immigration is the number one issue, but it, it wasn't really. I mean, it was, a, it was a highly salient issue, but now you have a poll showing literally it's the number one issue above foreign affairs and the economy. It's astonishing. And if you wanted to paint a scenario where Donald Trump would be elected president again, what you'd want to do is have the incumbent president totally play into his hands on his signature issue. And that's exactly, exactly what Joe Biden has done. Now, I think they're, they've realized it now. That's one reason he's going to the border and going to have this dueling uh, trip with, with Trump tomorrow, and they'll announce something or other. But I think it's it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. I don't think they have the, the stomach for doing what they'd really need to do at the border to get it under control uh, at this point. You know, they get, get a, you know, we talked about the uncommitted revolt in Michigan. You'd, you'd have the same sort of thing going on uh, on the left based on uh, uh, on the border stuff. So this is just a major vulnerability of Biden's. And, and you can feel it, you know, Eric Adams, Eric Adams saying the sanctuary city stuff is a mistake is another sign that the open borders orthodoxy is is cracking. At least it's cracking prior to November. You know, they realize it's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, he came in and he's been speaking about this more and more, but I need him to take this story as as somebody in New York. I need him to take this story to the left wing city council, call out names, call Mm -hmm. out the governor and you can do it. You could do it in a way that doesn't exonerate, uh, excoriate yourself from the party. Extricate yourself, I should say. Here's Eric Adams yesterday. Cut 15. New Yorkers have the right to be safe. And if you were to talk to the average New Yorker, uh, I believe they will line up on the same side with me, that we should not be allowing people who are repeated committing crimes uh, to remain here, and we cannot collaborate uh, with, uh, with ICE in the process. And he went on to say this. Cut 16. So no one is taken away from anyone's due process. But the mere fact we cannot share with ICE that this person has committed three robberies, that this person is part of an organized gang crew, 
mere fact we can't say that and can't communicate with that, that's problematic for me. And so no one is saying taking away anyone's due process. I mean, why is he even going out to, to apologize? People want to be safe, especially in working class communities, urban environments, and they're not. These guys are legitimate criminals here yeah. to commit crimes and laugh in our face and, and fly and, and give us the finger as they're leaving. The other guy making a recording saying, if you want to come to America, come now. Have a kid. They're an American citizen. They'll make you an American citizen. I mean, we're being played. Yeah, totally. And if there are a referendum in New York City, Eric Adams would win on this. But there's not. He'd, he'd have to, he has to get through all, all these other power centers, and he's not going to be able to do it. But the, just the fact, very fact that he says it is uh, shows shows some progress but the the idea of due process yeah if if we're going to you know convict and jail them due process but not if you're going to deport them they they don't belong here in the first place they never should have been let in the law says they need to be detained until their cases are are uh, reach completion or or they're deported and that's what we should be doing so the idea that you know you you have all these due process rights and whether you're going to be turned over to ice or not is is crazy it is, uh, no doubt about it. The other thing is, with the president's uh, civil trial and the judgment of $450 million, were you, what's your reaction to Jeb Bush, co-author of a Wall Street Journal editorial, coming to President Trump's side, saying this targeting of people for their political views uh, and their political stance is detrimental to the country? Kevin O'Leary saying it's detrimental to New York. I mean, this is pretty, these are apolitical people, and Jeb Bush, big rival of President Trump, uh, do you think this is a bigger story? It's it's huge. I mean, it's it's deeply un-American. It's uh, I mean, she, she is um, uh, Trisha James. She, she is uh, on on Twitter gloating every day about the amount that Trump owes. You know, that's not how a prosecutor operates. So this is profoundly wrong. It's it's uh, shameful. That he's going to have to put up you know half a billion dollars. He's going to have to scrape scrape up from somewhere just to appeal and continue maintaining his innocence. And there, there's worse to come. You know, with the Alvin Bragg case and, and potentially the Jack Jack Smith case. So th- this is a, this is a blight. You know, we'll look back on this and and uh, it'll be a shameful episode in American history. I so believe. we saw the speaker and the three leaders get together at the White House yesterday, and the speaker Johnson walked out by himself. And he's holding out. He says, I want the border done or else we're going to shut down the government. How does this end? Does this come with a small patch, another CR? What do you think? My guess is a small patch and another CR. That's what what my guess always is in these government shutdown fights. But I think Johnson, he needs to come up with a counteroffer on on the Ukraine foreign aid funding and and the border. You know, it can't be H.R. 2. They're not going to get – that through the Democratic Senate or get Biden to, to sign it. But they could get something short of that that really moves the ball and I think is incumbent on them to, to make that offer and uh, not, not be b- blamed for, for this situation, which I think, I think kind of the dysfunction in the House is, has hurt, you know, is, is hurting the party, and Johnson needs to step up here. Uh, I mean, I was talking to Kevin McCarthy. He's going to be on tomorrow for an hour. But Johnson just does not have any leadership experience. He does not know how to work, work things in the House. And Kevin McCarthy said something to me today. He said, you never meet with the others. Why is Keem Jefferson, Chuck Schumer in the room? Should be you and the president. You're third to mm-hmm. the power. If your vice president wants to be there, she's there. Whatever. That's his decision. But you work out a deal with the president, not Chuck Schumer and the other three and the other, yeah. and the other two. And I said, wow, I never thought about that. He goes, that's when we got those done, things done. See, McCarthy yeah, well, had see, a know, game they plan. They the House. I'm not saying they will, but if they do, just, just what they did to McCarthy will, will have been a big reason. It's the stupidest thing ever. Uh, led by a bunch of knuckleheads, Matt Rosendale is a moron, and Matt Gates is an embarrassment, mm-hmm. and they did it for their own personal gender. I have no idea what Nancy Mace is up to, 
But all these people, and I think even Hakeem Jeffries got to say to himself, man, uh, this was not helpful. Yeah, so, no, uh, totally agree. Especially because he can't get anything that he wants done either. Rich Lowry, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brian. Talk all right, uh, listen, when we come back, I'll be able to squeeze in some calls, I promise. one 408 I'll take them in the order and they are received. We're also uh, following all the other breaking news. No word yet about what's happening behind closed doors with Hunter Biden. But you can be sure we'll report it. Covering this election year like no other, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We all agree that we have a broken immigration system and there is a need to address the challenges at the border in a thoughtful, bipartisan way. As Democrats, we support a safe, a strong, a secure, and a humane border. We just need our House Republican colleagues not to play politics and engage in political stunts relative to the border. Ugh. Hakeem Jeffries, who thinks he's going to be speaker if he just lays out long enough, uh, but he's done nothing at the border. In fact, he, he accused uh, for a year and a half, maybe longer, of Republicans making up a crisis doesn't exist, and now it's so overwhelming he's blaming the Republicans for it, but they opened themselves up to it by agreeing to this, to this bipartisan deal and then when the deal came out, they didn't like it, so they walked away from it in some cases, giving Democrats a talking point. John in California, I'm sure the president's going to speak about that Thursday. Hey, John. Good morning, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. I got big problems with the Republicans, the way they're handling this border deal that they messed up. Nothing. First of all, the Democrats have already won with them having 8 million people already across the border. Any border deal, which should include the Ukraine and Israeli funding, should include the deportations. I mean, it's, I mean and I think the, the American people would go along with that because they see these people on the streets every day. They want them out of there. What city are you in, no Kevin? Uh, John, what, what city are you in? I'm in Fresno. Okay. But I, have, I was just in San Diego. Yeah. I lived in San Diego for 20 years. I moved to Fresno to get away from the city. Uh, I'm north of Fresno in the mountains. That city is going down the toilet because of what's going on right now with the 150,000 illegals coming across the border since October. And I have friends and family down there who can uh, are, are going crazy. Well, how do you feel, John, about the president, the new, the former president, saying, "I'm going to round them up"? There's plans to round people up, put them into camps, and then. Uh, flying them out. How would you feel about that? I don't know, Brian. I'd have to. I'd have to look to see what. Well, they I do. mean, that's I what he plans on doing. That's his version of deportation. Thanks, John. Hang in there, Debbie in New York City. Listen on WABC. Hey, Debbie. Okay, so the Fannie Willis thing is going to blow up because it's a disaster. Hope so. So, okay. So then, since they met with Jack Smith, if somebody else in that office gets appointed to this case, they're going to give him their notes. And whoever gets appointed, this case needs to go away for Trump, correct? Because they met with Jack Smith, and they admit it. Uh, well, they, they, met, they met with White House counsel. She would not answer the question when asked, as far as I know, which means they did. Uh, but this is a joke. And now you got to go uh, ramp up and get somebody up to speed on this case. And you got to do that with 17 people. They, they, she did a RICO case. No one even understood what she was doing. 
and now she's going to be kicked off of it if there's any justice in the world, and then people got to pick up that mess? It is a mess. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's going to be a big hour coming your way. We're following all the breaking news, including Hunter Biden testifying already behind closed doors. He says he's going to prove once and for all and put an end to this case and impeachment of his dad. Well, you shouldn't have left the laptop uh, in that computer repair shop, number one. You shouldn't have had uh, tons of hookers. You should have made multiple business deals and traded on your dad's name. I know you deny all of it, but the problem is there are tapes and there are records and there are appearances. So, so much of what he said is incorrect. Behind closed doors, we'll see what exactly comes out uh, because he's going to say in many of this, while I'm under indictment, I don't want to get myself in further trouble. He's got his lawyers by his side. Sandra Smith, co-host of America's Reports, is going to be with us in a half hour. Right now, we're joined by Joe Lonsdale. He's co-founder of Plantier, along with Peter Thiel and others, and founder and general partner of the firm uh, 8VC. And uh, Joe also co-wrote a Wall Street Journal editorial talking about the dangers that could go along with the $400 million judgment against plus judgment against Donald Trump in a civil case in New York simply because they don't like his politics. Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Good to, good to be on. So, Joe, what prompted you and Jeb Bush to get together on that? Uh, Jeb's an old friend. He's a businessman I respect, a governor I respect. And, you know, uh, a lot of us, you know, and I, I know Jeb has not always been a huge fan of Donald Trump. A lot of us are just outraged at how much weaponization we're seeing in our government across the board. You know, this has really started well, a long time ago with the, with the Labor Department having a pound here when Peter Thiel spoke up for Trump, you know. And, and, and then we're seeing my friend Elon Musk get attacked, and we're seeing Donald Trump get attacked unfairly. And, you know, that's not how America's supposed to work. So Jeb might not love Trump, but, I, but as a friend, you, you know, I, you know, I was talking to him about it, and he, he agrees that we, we can't allow this weaponization of our government. It's not right. And it's important for people, even if you don't love the person they're attacking, to speak up and say, that's wrong. That's not how America works. Kevin O'Leary was the first one to step up and say, look, no one's going to do business in New York now. And now if a bank wants to do business with Trump, they know they're going to get unbelievable scrutiny or ensure unbelievable scrutiny. And what people don't understand, it doesn't end with Trump. Maybe it just started with Trump. And what they did is start looking at and try to find a problem. There were no complaints from banks. There were no complaints from insurers. There were no complaints that people didn't get paid. In fact, everybody got paid back. But they went after him. They said you weren't telling, you weren't uh, approaching these loans, and you weren't being truthful uh, with your applications. And now they charge him four hundred fifty million dollars as he waits for an appeal. Who's got four hundred fifty million dollars laying around? Yeah, the, the, I mean, I, I was wondering, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution says you're not supposed to have excessive fines. It seems to me like that is clearly an excessive fine as well. The whole the whole thing is is, is clearly ridiculous. And, you know, it's it's not how America is supposed to work. I love this country. I'm, I'm building a lot in this country. And I, I'm still very optimistic on America. But the way we keep this working is we don't want to be like the third world. We don't want to have these crazy people hunting people for, for bullshit reasons. How was uh, Peter Thiel pursued? Peter Thiel. Well, you know, yeah, so so so. You know, Peter and I were co-founders of Palantir, and, and you know, it, all of a sudden when he spoke at the Republican convention 
for Trump. You know, his very famous speech. He said, I'm, "He said, you know, he said, I'm proud to be uh, Republican. I'm proud to be gay. Proud to be American." And I thought that was a pretty cool thing to, to do on the floor of the RNC for Trump. And uh, you know, you know, right afterwards, less than two months afterwards, the Labor Department sues Palantir, says we're not hiring enough Asians, which is pretty funny because I think the company's like 25% Asian in Silicon Valley. And, and by the way, we're not allowed to hire Chinese citizens for the DoD stuff we're doing. So it was, it was clearly just uh, it was clearly like a mafia type tactic where it's like, you know what? You do something we don't like, we're going to give you trouble. And this is this is how the government works now. The regulatory state has massive amount of power. It's, it's unchecked. It's unaccountable. And when people speak up, it finds ways it finds ways to harass you. There's activists who do that. It's terrible. And then you turn out with Elon Musk. Now he's uh, in the crosshairs of the government, even though he's built the number one electric car in the country. You would think he'd be the darling, uh, but because of Twitter and what he's done and what he exposed, now he's in the crosshairs. What price is he paying? You know, it's. Uh, I mean, Elon's been really courageous. I think he's he's one of the most important men in America. Uh, we you know we'd be losing to China on so many things with space as well and defense with with space. If we didn't have SpaceX. It's just extraordinary what he's accomplished. And I mean, he gets standing ovations right when you go in front of people in the army and whatnot. But you you basically have every you basically have every regulatory apparatus weaponized against him. The DOJ is going after him. The SEC is going after him. The FCC. The you know there's there's all these launches delayed for months for total BS reasons of critical national security things with SpaceX because they fish and wildlife, you know, people, cat ladies want to harass them. I mean, the whole thing is just, is just really terrible. So for you personally, you're not just sitting on the sidelines looking to max out your money. You're also helping with defense. And when it came to Ukraine, you took action. So what could you tell us about what you've done and what you've discovered and how you've helped uh, them hold off the Russians? Yeah, you know, well, I I, I started Palantir 20 years ago, and I'm very proud of it. I'm not running it today, but but listen, there, there's there's the the most important there's a, there's a different types of, of of weapons that are important for defense. Some of the most important weapons are the best intel, intelligence tools and the technologies that let you see what's going on. And so, you know, Palantir has you know been deployed in Ukraine early on, and we had the cover story in Time earlier. And you know, you help figure out where the where the Russian forward generals and corporals are. You help figure out, you know, what they're doing. You help, you help map it out and you help target them. And, and you know, having those kinds of technologies uh, is really critical in, in warfare these days. And, it's, you know, it's Palantir. It's companies like Andrel as well, which my friends started after Palantir, which are providing all the technologies for anti-drone and for all sorts of other kind of new, new ways to target the bad guys. And it turns out that if you want to stay ahead in warfare, you need to have your best and brightest engineers kind of working on the front lines and, and, and help, helping out, you know, with the U.S., which is what we're doing. Tell us about Palantir, like how you decided it. And you're not running it now, but what it was designed to do. Yeah, well, you know, Palantir, Palantir really came out of uh, came out of a lot of what we learned in Silicon Valley uh, in the you know in, in the first first tech wave. And it turned out there's companies like PayPal. You know, so Elon Musk and Peter Thiel each started competing companies. They merged to become PayPal. And at PayPal, we had the Chinese and Russian mafia trying to steal all sorts of money from us. We were losing millions of dollars a month. Our competitors went bankrupt, these mafia online. And we figured out how to build all these investigative tools to stop them. And, and, and you know, we had to teach the FBI and the Secret Service how to, how to arrest these people and how to get, you know, get, find them after we, we found them. And we got to know the guys. And it turned out that the tools in D.C. were way behind. And then 9-11 happened. And after 9-11, the government spent billions of dollars on stuff that was way behind Silicon Valley. And this was, this was a problem because America was under attack and you had incompetent uh, people, you know, basically spending money in the wrong way. So we said, you know what, we better take the best and the brightest from the tech world and re-equip the, you know, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, uh, you know, all the national counterterrorism centers, how to bring data together and how to, how to go, after, go after the bad guys. And Palantir partnered with a lot of these groups, partnered with a lot of special forces, and really was critical in helping find and take out thousands of terrorists, which was 
obviously something we're very proud of and it you know, helps stop a lot of major attacks as well. Joe Lonsdale is with us. Joe, which could really, in contrast to a lot of uh, Silicon Valley, you decided they didn't want to work with the Defense Department after a while, right? Yeah, you're right. And that, that was, you know, <clears throat> we were seen as very strange people in Silicon Valley to want to be partnering. Why are you guys doing defense intelligence? Why aren't you just doing social media? And, you know, it, it got worse. You know, when the woke stuff really started getting crazy in 2013, 14, 15, I remember Google had these key programs that were trying to help the government. And all of a sudden they protested and they said, we're not going to help the government anymore because defense is wrong. And, you know, it was a kind of anti-American thing where Google was, you know, you see it today, too, with Google. They're pretty woke. They're, they're globalists. They're not really pro-U.S. And so they pulled out. And when they did that, a bunch of my friends and I said, oh, this is not acceptable. we got to jump back in. That's when you see my friends in Palmer Lucky start Andrew. So you see us kind of jump back in and start building these companies because we realized, you know, there was no other source of the best and brightest engineers going into this anymore. And so we had to step in. And what about you deciding to go into Ukraine? What did you discover? How did you help? Well, so, so I wasn't running Palantir by that point. And, and, uh, but, you know, and it's an important point, Brian. Palantir is, uh, is an American company. It partners with the American government. The American government is what decides to go into Ukraine. Palantir decides to, if they're going to do something and help something, that we're going to do it really well. And, you know, but I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the truth. The first group to actually <laughs> – Palantir, even though it's American, also partners with our allies. I think U.K. took it in there first because we do partner with the U.K. You know, it's America encourages us to. And, uh, and, and, and then American others went in as well. And Palantir basically helped map out where the bad guys are, run all the systems, if, you know, basically, like, what are the information systems to learn how you're going to fight a war, how you're going to decide what's, what, you know, what, where your supplies are, how you're going to decide what to attack, what to defend. Like, this has to be run through an AI-driven system that takes all the information into account, empowers you to make those decisions. That's what Palantir is. It's a backbone that, that kind of runs the efforts. And also, we're, no, we're noticing that warfare has really changed even from when the Ukraine war started. I mean, we're seeing this now. Like the, our Pentagon's going to school on how the Ukrainians have innovated from some of the things that we've given them. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, the drone part of the warfare is fascinating. You basically create uh, tens of thousands of these really small things, and you can use them to target and go really fast, and they're really hard to block. And, you know, there's new technologies. There's a company called Epirus right now, which is the leading EMP technology in the world that we also built here in the U.S., and it turns out you can, you can fire microwave radiation to turn off drones miles, you know, miles away and whatnot and protect things. And, and, and we're, you know, there's all sorts of new kind of back and forth. How do you make small weaponized drones? How do you shoot them down? Uh, Iran, of course, has some very powerful, what are called level three drones, are these big Shahid drones, and they're really hard to stop, and we're learning how to stop them without having to waste too much money. Because the problem is right now, Brian, is if, it's, if you spend $3 million on a Patriot missile to stop one of these things or some other giant thing, that's it. and the drone itself only costs you know, you know, $10,000, that's a huge waste. And so there's, there's all sorts of new warfare techniques going back and forth trying to figure it out. Because we're spending too much knocking down these Houthi, uh, these Houthi tribesmen are just sending these one-way drones exactly. in. Exactly. So and, it, exactly. and then we got to go reload. So are you are you guys working on that now? Are you playing a role with this? It, well, yeah, well, so 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 we have these new so Epirus, and, you know, in 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 mythology, Epirus was a bow of Theseus who started Athens, and his bow had infinite arrows. And the reason we're called, they call this thing called Epirus is it fires a blast of energy, so it has infinite arrows effectively. And so the blast of energy only costs you know pennies or dollars compared to spending millions of dollars for missiles. So we're trying to teach the government, don't waste a million dollars every time. Just have an energy weapon ready and shoot it down with the energy weapon. It's much cheaper. It's much more effective if you can get a massive shield that basically hits everything. And so, there's, yeah, so, so we are working on that as well. That company, Empress, is doing really good work. It's, we're, you know, it's just, just getting, starting to get deployed in some of the things there, too. So, Joe, when you say directed energy, you mean lasers? You know, lasers is one version of that. The Israelis have great have great lasers, actually. But in this case, we're doing microwave radiation. It turns out is the most.
the second blast of super high energy microwaves. And what that does, it destroys electronics. So it doesn't actually hurt people. Any one of these things has electronics in it. If you fry the electronics, they fall out of the sky. So that's how that one works. You, so would I see it? Would I, I mean, would, do what, uh, I see a blast? I would not even see it? You would not, you would not even, you would not even see it. So if we're gonna, we, when we show it off, if you look up Epirus online, you could we show it off like as if it's like the energy shield. But you know, you wouldn't really, you wouldn't really, you just see the device and you wouldn't even know it fired probably, and and the thing would just fall out of the sky. It's pretty pretty cool. How effective has China been in taking some of our technology? We seem to lead, and they seem to have. Iran almost instantly had the same level or close to the same level drones as we had. How are these rest of the world keeping up? Is this flat out thievery? Well, you know, uh, I, 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 they, they do like to try to copy us, and we've caught China a lot of times trying to copy us at our companies. But we have pretty good security. I don't think they're, I don't think they're up to speed. They don't have a palantir. They don't have what Epirus has. They, they have probably stolen a lot of things over the years. But let's be honest, Iran. Iran has probably the third best electrical engineering university in the world. Iran has a lot of smart people. I, I, I don't hate the Iranian people. I hate the Iranian government. Unfortunately, uh, there are enemies right now, and their people are really smart. I have to say the same thing for China. China has. You know, the Utani used to only just copy us 20, 30 years ago. But if you look at the innovation and the engineering going on in China, there's a lot of really great engineers. Uh, we, I, I desperately hope we can have uh, we can have a different regime in China because the CCP is evil. But it would be awesome to be able to work with the Chinese people, man, because they are innovating and they are smart. And they are going to be a threat if we can't fix that government over there. And finally, let's go full circle. What do you hope comes out of the editorial? What's been the feedback since you wrote it on The Wall Street Journal? You know, it, it's it's been really great because a lot of my friends in business who don't like Trump, they agree that, that that for the sake of America, it's not right what's happening. It's, it's kind of like this far left part of the Democratic Party has, has weaponized the courts. And I think a lot of even the moderate left, uh, you know, a lot of my friends are honest about it, say this is wrong. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. They're afraid to speak up in public against their own party when they're politicians. But it, but in the business circles, they agree with it. And I really hope we can shift the Overton window away because it's just, we don't want the right weaponizing in the courts either. We want nobody weaponizing the courts. That, that's, how we, that's how we spiral towards a third world country. And so it's great to see people step up and say, yeah, even though I don't like this person, this is not how we're supposed to treat him. This is not how America is supposed to work. Joe, you agree that Ukraine needs to be funded, right? I, I think we need to stop Russia. I think there's a lot of uh, corruption and bad things and waste and that we've that, that, that happen over there. But oh, so, it's, I, so I emphasize with why people are opposed to it. But overall, uh, I think we need to stop the bad guys and fight the bad guys. Joe Lonsdale, thanks so much. Appreciate what you're doing for the country and and for our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You got it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Sandra Smith's coming up at the bottom of the hour. We'll have some calls. We'll have uh, a few minutes to get to your calls right after we're done. And keep in mind, coming up, April 27th, I'm going to be right outside Las Vegas. It's going to be the History, Liberty, and Laugh Show on stage. It's uh, it's going to be a great night. VIP opportunities, a chance for me to interact directly with you guys. I missed the Super Bowl, but this is going to be better. So go to BrianKillMe.com and get some tickets. See you there. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. To be frank, Trace, they see a president in decline. That's why Donald Trump's age, which is close on paper to Joe Biden's, is not an issue, while Biden's is. Donald Trump now is the same Mm -hmm. Donald Trump of five years ago, of 10 years ago. 
the Joe Biden of today is noticeably less sharp than when he yeah. ran in 2020. And it's not really a fixable problem for the White House right now, because the more they put Joe Biden out there to try to rebut these claims that they're hiding the president away, yep. the more that Americans see that his age really is yep. an issue. And so that's just such a liability. And this was called, I talked about a lot of people and they just don't have a choice. They have to put him out. And that's the recommendation for people that like him. John Favreau used to be a writer for uh, for President Obama and knows Joe Biden well. He's got this podcast, uh, I think, Pod Save the World. Here's what he said, Pod Save America, cut 10. And he sounds more frail than he used to, even in 2019 and 2020. Now, that may and I think doesn't have anything to do with how sharp he is mentally. But the voice sounds frail and he shuffles more because of the arthritis in his back. So for most people in the country who are just watching him be president, what do they see when they turn on the television? That's what they're seeing. And that is a Democrat saying that. And that's what people are saying. Why are you still in? Why are you licking an ice cream cone talking about peace in the Middle East? Something that breaking some news that prime ministers didn't know and people in Hamas didn't know and and they got way ahead of the curve because there's no way they're looking for some type of deal by next Monday. I mean, it's not close. And if it was close, you're not helping by saying it's coming on Monday. And if you're going to make a statement like that, you don't like an ice cream cone, especially after doing this for 40 years. Guys, hold it a second. Be with you in a moment. Hang out. Do your little skit. Walk over to the cameras. Make sure Seth Meyers not in it. What was the question? Oh, Israel? Okay, fine. Uh, with Israel and Hamas, you know, there are some things going on now that make me optimistic that something could be happening uh, by next Monday. And, you know, I could fall apart, but I hope something could happen by next Monday. In terms of what happened in Michigan yesterday, it was uh, Trump with a triumphal win. It looked like Nikki Haley under 30 percent. So that's the least she did, was not able to campaign. But she does have some support still, and she's going to fight it out through Super Tuesday. Here's what Rama Darve said on uh, Fox News yesterday, cut nine. Nikki is in this race for herself. The American people clearly do not want her as their candidate. So uh, regardless of whether she stays in the race or not, President Trump had a huge win tonight. He yeah. obviously is the, the leader of our party, and he's the obvious leader for Michigan. You know, one thing that President Trump mentioned in his speech tonight was the auto workers. And you hear a lot from the mainstream media about the Muslim vote that Biden is losing. He's also losing the vote of our auto workers. They do not feel supported by Joe Biden's policies or his posture towards them and the Made in America manufacturing yeah. that is necessary and for that state. That's going to be key. You talk about the Muslim vote, sure. Matters a lot in Michigan. But the auto workers uh, matters more. And the union heads might be for Biden, but the workers feel differently. Sanders Smith's going to finish out the half hour with us. It's going to be a big show. Uh, the Democrats are now speaking. We'll bring you the latest. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I was proud today to walk in and pull a Democratic ballot and vote uncommitted. 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire. Yet, President Biden is not hearing us. This is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen. I don't know why she's in Congress, really to help the Palestinians. Uh, usually should be helping America. Maybe I'm a little old-fashioned. That was Rashida Tlaib talking about getting 101,000 votes 
to non-committed to send a message to Joe Biden to stop supporting Israel. Sandra Smith is with us now, co-anchor of America Reports, helping out Bill Hemmer because Dana Perino's off this week. You can listen to Sandra from 1 to 3, where she has told me confidentially, or actually not told me directly, but according to sources, she looks forward to my appearances more than anything else <laughs> every Thursday. That is fact, actually. Right. And by the way, commercial breaks today, Hemmer's onto this like live eagle's nest like um, webcam. And so at commercials, we were watching an Just eagle. Just watching an eagle? Yeah. And it was riveting. It was exciting. What's the eagle doing? Lovely morning. I think it was a mama bird sitting on her babies. Really? And so they're waiting for those babies to mature and take flight. It's my... I mean, these kids and their internet. <laughs> uh, I always thought it would be good to talk to the co-anchor in the break. Maybe I'm a little fashion with that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. I, I think you're getting ready to do your show. Yuri you did two hours of TV. You're going to do another two hours. Yesterday you did the five. And Love of course it. you're working on Saturday too, uh, helping out in South Carolina. But, Sandra, just when Rashida Tlaib is proud, 101,000 votes, that's 13% of the vote. What kind of impact is that for you? I mean, we, we, I talked, to, big. we talked to Mark Thiessen this morning, and he said this, this, is, this raises some serious red flags. And the Biden administration, obviously, this campaign is taking notice. That's why he had this ice cream cone moment um, talking about a ceasefire. Um, but quoting her directly, Rashida Tlaib, when 74 percent of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us. This is the way we can use our democracy to say, listen, I mean, the uncommitted vote Chicago, vote for you know. Trump, right? They're going to bring it to Chicago. And can you imagine demonstrating in front Democrats demonstrating in front of the Democratic Convention uh, about Democrats and their stand for Israel, which most of the country supports Israel? I hate to tell you. I don't know. I, I, my prediction on Chicago is that is going to be a mess. Someone from that city, it is in shambles, Chicago. So for the DNC to be Why there considering it? this, it's going to be – I don't know. They're, they're going to be over by the McCormick Center and anybody listening who knows the layout of Chicago. You, you can, do. You can, clean up the, you can clean it up around there. Um, I mean if you walked there right now, you'd see the crime and the, 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 the trash and all that kind of stuff all Legal over the immigrants. streets. Um, it, I was referencing actual trash, but um, you would definitely see a rising illegal immigrant population for sure. I mean, they have major problems. And then you've got a police force that has dwindled all these years, right? They said no more police, cut them back. And now they've got a crime problem that's run out of control. So that is going to be a moment for the Democrats. Well, I'll tell you, they have a mayor that's got 21 percent approval. Ah. I mean, 21 percent approval. Who is saying it's a it's a terrible thing that the governor of Texas is sending illegal immigrants there, but they don't know. Uh, you know why the problem is with illegal immigration. The thing has changed so much, Sandra. It went from there's no problem. To, How dare you build a wall? What is this, the age of the Vikings? To 53% of the country want us to build a wall right now. And now it's the number one issue for Democrats, Republicans, and independents, which, which, according to Gallup. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I was looking at Chicago and the situation there. Remember, they were taking over all the police precincts and yeah. how messy that got. Um, so this is a good <laughs> opportunity to bring up Fox News voter analysis. You saw it in Iowa, New Hampshire, latest South Carolina. I mean, it almost became unsurprising that immigration was topping the list of top concerns for voters uh, facing the country today. It's no longer just the economy. That was number two in each of the three states. Um, but it is now about immigration. Um, and most people, most of those Republicans responding do say they favor a border wall. This is all working in favor of Donald Trump and his reelection campaign. Most Americans favor a border wall. In the two o'clock hour today on our show, um, I reached out to this person last night. He was featured in the Los Angeles Times multiple occasions over the past decade. 
he lost his 25-year-old son in 2010 to a Honduras immigrant. He wrote me a letter last night responding to what we heard from the um, Democrat Congresswoman Porter who said, you know, well, we, Porter. we can't just let this one instance, the right. brutal killing of a 22-year-old university student down there in Georgia, we can't let this one instance shape our immigration policy. He's clearly outraged by that. And he is a big advocate for doing something about immigration and to not have crimes like this happen to anyone else's sons or daughters. So he's going to be coming on the program today. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty important, too. How about the fact that I did not know it. Athens is a sanctuary city. And it turns out this guy committed a crime in a sanctuary city. And that's one of the reasons it's not a sanctuary city. It's not. The mayor says it's not. Um, and, and, And he was never technically arrested. Um, so while they do have some exceptions for are you checking my work there, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of clarifications on that this morning. Aiden, do you have this here? Is, yeah, it's a state law. They don't allow it, although they do have some exceptions where if there is an arrest, then ICE can come in. But that wouldn't apply to the situation. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Aiden, but it wouldn't apply to the situation because he was cited in the in the theft that he was charged with, right? But he was not arrested, so it, it gets really muddy. But I don't know if you were watching the mayor in Athens who stepped out this morning. Oh, there was some screaming going on. There was protests because residents showed up and said, "You've got blood on your hands." This is a mayor who why not come out and say this is absolutely terrible what happened to this university student and the horror that the the these kids are now having to live through on their campus because of yeah. this brutal slang. I'm going to do something about it. He then started talking about what he's done to increase the police force, how they're going to make the community safer. To me, as I had said to Hemmer when we were listening to that, this is putting Band-Aid on a problem. Why are we not talking about these illegal immigrants coming over the border? I mean, you look back at the things that this administration, Brian, we've been rolling tape. The things that we were hearing from Kamala Harris. When these migrants, this migrant who killed that 22-year-old girl, was walking over the border, what were they saying? The border's secure, Mayorkas was saying in that moment. Oh, yeah. Kamala Harris was saying, we're doing more for immigration you know, than, than any previous administration. No one believes it. They downplayed it. They ignored it. And meanwhile, these killers were walking over the border. So this guy, Abara, who killed uh, Lakin Riley, they say he blew off a court appearance for shoplifting in December. He was arrested uh, he was arrested in Georgia on the October 27th. A bench warrant was issued for him. So he was arrested on, on the 27th. In December, uh, December he was arrested. There was a bench warrant out for him already. And, you know, he got in trouble in New York. So he was in trouble in New York for driving around with a kid without a helmet on. Should have been detained for that, putting a child in danger. Then he leaves his wife, goes down to Georgia, hangs out with his brother, who was working at the Cafeteria University of Georgia, and somehow thought it was a great idea to... to uh, beat up a University of Georgia student, and then kill her. And we don't know the details of it, but the question is, why is this guy here? And the fact is, you now have a mayor of New York who said, I really think it's time to modify the sanctuary city and let uh, or let ICE work with our cops. A lot of times, ICE should lead the cops and yeah. say, I got something on these guys that you don't have. Yeah. That's the way it used to work. Guy, You know that guy behind bars? It's worse than you think. With the neck tattoo... He's uh, in a and I'm going to take him. That's the way it used to be. Bottom line, we're dealing with people who should never have been here in the first place. Um, They should never have been in the country in the first place. And this is an administration who's now only dealing with the problem because it's been become a major political headache as the president's running for reelection. 
And then the media coverage of the story as a runner, I'm highly insulted by the media coverage that now we need we need to we need to look at at, at runners and the, the dangers of running early in the morning or at night. Like yeah. we're supposed to change yeah. the way we live to adapt to these horrific policies that are leading to these stories that, as Bill Malugin put it, it there's only almost too many to report here. I mean, you've got the the incident in Virginia, the assault of a minor of an illegal immigrant there. You have this the latest happening down there in Louisiana. Um, this is just an awful, awful situation that seems to only be getting worse. So, I mean, the president of the United States there, there are issues that come to him. He's strong on this, obviously strong on this. So now you're going to have tomorrow in Brownsville, yeah, you're going to be probably on the air where the president of the United States is going to be in Brownsville and then the former president of the United States is going to be in Eagle Pass. Why would he go to Brownsville? Only 12 people crossed Brownsville yeah. yesterday. 12. When it's bad, it's 100, 150. Well, you know the answer to your question, right? Why? They can't go sit in the epicenter. They can't go where, where illegal immigrants are pouring over the border unlawfully. If I wanted to solve the problem, I would. We know that that's happening. Look, you know, now Democrats are going to say, oh, now they're complaining about where he's going to the border. It's important he goes to the border. He's going to the border. Does it change his policies? I don't know. I, I say roll tape on every Republican for years leading up to this moment who called on this administration to do something for them to only say the border secure, the border is closed, the border is in a better condition than it was under Trump, to now be calling it a crisis and saying Republicans aren't doing anything about it. Right. I want you to hear what Mayor Adams said about sanctuary cities. Cut 15. New Yorkers have the right to be safe. And if you were to talk to the average New Yorker, uh, I believe they were lined up on the same side with me that we should not be allowing people who are repeated committing crimes uh, to remain here, and we cannot collaborate uh, with with ICE in the process. Now, I feel that way. Do you feel that way? Horrible. Right. Horrible. I mean, we should have at our disposal the federal resources to get these people out of the country. I look at New York City and, like, it's bad. I mean, you. how often do you go to buy the Roosevelt Hotel? Yeah, every um, day. For anybody listening right now, I go by there every single day. All the restaurants and the businesses that are around there, they've had to close their doors. You see um, the big story today about how much security out. we're paying? About these huge guys in elite security force in order to keep the migrants from beating each other up in the Roosevelt Hotel. Yeah. So that's huge money. Oh, Plus, you can't walk by there. You cannot walk by there. Um, I, I think you've probably heard me say this on my show. Um, I stop on occasion and ask police, like, hey, what's going on here? You see all the scooters lined up. They're not lawfully owned. They're not registered. Cops say in most part they're, for, the, for the most part, they're stolen. They're told not to do anything about it. They don't have the resources to track down who owns these. Are yeah. they, you know, are they illegally owned? But they're using them for the, the gig economy is what we're told. Uber Eats, as yeah. they say. Or... So this is that economic impact. Charles Payne keeps citing this. He says you cannot separate the immigration crisis from the economic crisis we're going through today. We are highly impacted as an, as an economy by the, all these immigrants coming into these American cities. The Washington Post is a story today about how this really helped the economy because we needed workers, and now I guess we're using those workers. Oh. And Senator Langford has told me, too, there's Republicans out there who don't want to E-Verify. Because a lot of them in rural communities, they need to use these illegals because they can't get any workers. If you have E-Verify, when they, they'll light up and says you don't belong here. Mm. So that's why we don't have E-Verify, because people looking out for their own. We should just pick up the pace on legal immigration. That would certainly help. Well, the New York Times yesterday, I chewed on this with Larry Kudlow last night. The New York Times had a piece yesterday morning basically saying that, well, 
Trump doesn't have a plan to decrease inflation. In fact, his policies would increase prices in this country. One of the main reasons why? Because he would deport illegal immigrants. And that there would, be a, there, there would be a labor squeeze, and therefore that would push prices up. Can't so, make that up. So I want you to hear what Kevin O'Leary said on primetime last night, just about what's going on with the crime, with the civil case, and what's happening in New York, cut 20. The competition of states started five years ago, when all of a sudden taxes and inefficiencies and poorly run jurisdictions started seeing people leave. And you can count San Francisco as one of those places. You can now count the state of California. You can count the 1,200 license plates that are changed into Florida from New York State every day. And so that's happening anyways before the migrant issue hit. The more successful states, like a Tennessee, if you look at Nashville, it's the fastest growing city in America, have figured out a way to deliver goods and services on a very competitive basis. This is really about management. It actually is about management. Some cities are well-managed, some states are well-managed, and others are not. And now, post-pandemic, we have the competition of states. And I frankly think it's healthy. It's healthy, and people leave in New York. And so they're going to up taxes because their tax base is leaving. Yeah, and I know this has been a big discussion. I think the... I think the something we're if not saying when we when we identify that trend that does continue um is that the very people that are hurt the most by that are the people who can't flee they don't have the money to pick right. up and move their family or put their kids into a different school or a private school in another place and you know they they they're not as mobile so the very people that this administration says they're out to help the most are being hurt the most by their ineffective policies. America Reports co-anchor Sandra Smith is here for a few more minutes. She's on from 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, if you're watching on Fox Nation or looking on the app right now, are you going to be wearing the same outfit at 1? Uh, I, I I will change, actually. You now that you just reminded me, I will change. And by the way, we'll have the Biden speech okay. on crime. And we'll also get a KJP White House press briefing. And maybe get something from the Hunter Biden behind closed doors testimony. Very well could. Back in a moment. On the road to 2024, is a Trump nomination just a super Tuesday away? Well, the numbers are far greater than we even anticipated. I hope she'll drop out. There's no reason for her to stay in. You can't win a general election if you can't get 40% of Republican primary voters. All eyes on Super Tuesday, right here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. What we saw, I think, was a rather embarrassing spectacle where the Republicans continued to uh, belabor completely trivial points. They uh, seemed to be obsessively focused on speakerphones and use of speakerphone. I did not know that that was the devil's technology, but apparently it is. Um, And um, I believe, uh, based on this first hour that this whole thing really has been a tremendous waste of our legislative time and the people's resources. Right. Uh, so, of course, Hunter Biden behind closed doors. No one's going to bring up the $8 million from China. What exactly you got for that? Where your president actually met with one of those leaders and asked to be on the board. $6.5 million from Ukraine. You were actually brought in on a speakerphone with that, the former president of the United States, then vice president. $3.5 million for Russia entities, including the, the Moscow mayor, one of the few billionaires, oligarchs, who has not been sanctioned. I'm sure that didn't come up. And the $3 million from Romania were the 12 trips in which you went with on the vice president, Air Force Two, and one did your own business deals. It seems like the president 
at some point had dinner, had conversations, or golfed with almost all of his business partners. Sandra Smith is here, co-anchor of America Report, starts at 1 o'clock. What about Jamie Raskin's comment stands out Yeah, for and then AOC took to the microphones, called it a deep-sea fishing expedition. Look, I think the American public... Um, they they deserve answers to this. After hearing Tony Bobolinsky, you talked about Hunter's business partners. He testified that Joe Biden was involved in the business ventures. He also testified he personally met with him. Jonathan Turley said this. He said he's going to have this in this Hunter Biden in this deposition. He's going to have this disjointed position where he's going to insist that he was not just uh, wasn't just selling his father's name, that he was the globe trotting business genius. Well, Tell us. How? That should be the question. Yeah. Carrie Kupak Urban said that this morning. That should be the question. What did you do in exchange for this money? What ex- expertise do you have? It's certainly not on energy. Did you have a meeting? Did you fly on Air Force Two and do your own private business? Did yeah. your dad even know about that? You couldn't tell me it didn't come up. It didn't come up at all. Uh, it didn't come up at all in your conversation. But the president had a role here. And the other one is, and it was brought up in his opening comments, Sandra, one of his business partners in jail for 14 years, Devin Archer, another business partner, going to jail for uh, shortly. And he says, well, that guy's, you know, this guy's going to jail and Bob Alinsky lied. Well, that's not good enough. Yeah. The, the, you're the ones who brought them into our lives. I didn't come up and said partner with these people. Uh, remember uh, Biden saying, I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business right. dealings. He sort of changed the messaging that I have no knowledge of. Um, or vice versa, but there's a there's a paper. Sandra Smith, thanks so much. Thanks. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.